0: We want you to know you absolutely matter to God, and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. I found this really interesting. Let me just borrow from the John Mark Comer book and give you a a brief history of speed. Uh, We all know our world has sped up to a frantic pace. You feel it in the air. You feel it on the 401. But as far back as 200 BC, people were complaining about this new technology and what it was doing to society. You know what it was if you've read Hitler Comer's book. Here's the quote from the Roman playwright uh, Plautus. This sundial that cuts and hacks my days so wretchedly into small portions Ah, this new technology of the sundial. Fast forward to the monks in the 6th century, and Benedict organized the monastery around uh, seven times of prayer each day. And then the 12th century, monks actually invented the mechanical clock to accurately call the brothers to prayer. But most historians point to the year 1370 as the turning point in our relationship with time. That's the year, the first public clock tower was erected in uh, Cologne, Germany. And uh, before that, time was, you know, you could say more uh, organic, more felt than telt. It was It was linked to the rotation of the earth and the four seasons, and, you know, you went to bed with the moon, and you got up with the sun. Day, days were long and busy in the summer, and they were... Short and slow in the winter. There was a there was a rhythm to to the year, to the day. Uh, these were ag- agrarian rhythms, right? The, the farmers' hours. And uh, but the clock changed all that. It 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 created artificial time, if you will. It created uh, working nine to five. What a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm just the control I have with this. Um We stopped listening to our bodies, we started listening to alarm clocks and uh, whether or not our bodies were actually done resting. One historian put it like this, as to the invention of the clock, he says, here was man's declaration of independence from the sun, only later to find he had accomplished this mastery by putting himself under the dominion of a machine with imperious demands all its own. The clock, has imperious demands all its own, doesn't it? And then in 1879, you had Edison and the light bulb, which made it possible to stay way up after dark. Brace yourself for this stat. Before Edison, the average person slept 11 hours a night. Ever read biographies of the great men and women of of church history who got up at four in the morning to, to pray, you know, John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon and St. Teresa. And I'm like, oh, how spiritual are they? I could never get up at 4 a.m. Until you realize they went to bed at 7 p.m., like before Jeopardy is even on. And, uh, you know, after nine hours sleep, it seems a little less spiritual sacrifice, doesn't it? But now in Canada, at least, we're down to seven hours a night uh, average, could that be part of this cultural exhaustion that we're feeling? And shortly after Edison, technology, you know, really accelerated uh, our relationship with time, started creating these so-called, you know, time-saving devices, the thermostat and cars and takeout and email and AI and programmable coffee pots and Laundry machines, dishwasher machines, microwaves. So answer me this. Why do most of us feel like we have less time, not more? What gives? I mean, these these devices actually do save a lot of time. So where did all this saved time go? Well, it turns out we just... Spent it on other things. It's funny to me to look at the predictions from the 1960s. You know, the sci-fi writers and the futurists. Uh, they thought by now we'd be working way few, fewer hours. They thought by 1985 we'd be working 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. Everybody thought the main problem of the future would be too much uh, free time on our hands. I like the the lack of imagination that, you know, the future is just sort of a giant television floating in the middle of a 70s uh, living room. Uh, It it, it usually, um, the opposite actually happened. Leisure time went down. We we worked nearly four weeks more on average than we did in 1979. It, It used to be culturally speaking that leisure was a sign of wealth. People spent more money, To to be at the at the country club or sip mimosas uh, while playing tennis, you know, but that's that's changed. Busyness is now a sign of wealth and prestige, and not surprisingly, over that same period of time, we've witnessed the death of Sabbath in Canada. Uh, Even in my lifetime, some of you may remember there were laws that forced businesses to close. On on the Sabbath. anybody re- remember those days? Yeah, you're showing your age. There was a government mandated speed limit on the on the pace of life. You could say, uh, the city would shut down uh, at six p.m. six days a week, and it would shut down completely on Sunday, except for church. So imagine uh, the big deal when this little store came along called Seven Eleven, the first chain to be open seven days a week, till 7 p.m. no less. Unheard of. I mean, the hours were right there in the store name. Uh, now, even the name doesn't make sense because most of them are open 24 hours. 7-Eleven opened 24 hours. What? So, in a matter of a few short years, Sunday evolved from a day of rest and worship to a day of what? What? buy more crap, run errands, eat out, work, work, work. And I don't think we as a society slowed down long enough to to ask, what is this pace gonna do to our health, our mental health? And we certainly didn't slow down long enough to ask what this is gonna do to our souls. Comer says that uh, in his opinion, all of this history reached a climax in, in 2007 when he says the history books will be, uh, uh, will say this was a watershed year uh, on par with 1440, the year of the, of the printing press. Anybody know what the big deal about 2007 was? iPhone. iPhone iPhone. Steve Jobs released the iPhone. Oh, and by the way, in that same year, a little something called Facebook opened to everyone outside of colleges. It was the year of something we call the cloud. Uh, This upstart app called Twitter came on the scene. But let's save that particular rant for next week so uh, you have seven more days to enjoy your phone before I ruin that for you as well. My point is this. In our culture, the word slow is, is usually a put-down. If someone has a low IQ, we might call them slow. If, if, if the service at a restaurant is bad, we call it slow. When a movie's boring, we call it slow. So the message is clear. Slow equals bad, fast equals good. But in this upside-down kingdom of God, where everything's kind of on its head. Hurry is of the devil. Slow is closer to Jesus. And Jesus is, is what love looks like in flesh and blood. So I would say very little can be done with hurry that can't be done better without it, uh, especially our lives with, with God. We talk about having a walk with Jesus. It's not a run with Jesus. So, so if you're thinking, if only I had just a few more hours in the day, uh, let me propose a radical thought to you. I'm not sure the solution is actually more time. What what would you do with 10 more hours a day? The same thing most people would do, you'd fill them. Uh, same thing people do when they get more money by the way they spend it and wonder where all the money went uh, the solution to an overbusy life is not more time the solution is to slow down and simplify the time that we've been given the same amount of time everybody has been given by the way to to schedule our lives around what truly matters See, we live in a culture that wants to bypass limitations, not accept them. Um, We want to watch every new film, listen to every new podcast, read every new book, hear every album, go to every concert, uh, get a new stamp on our passport, try every new restaurant, befriend every new person that comes along, rise to the top of every field. Hashtag YOLO. What does that mean? Yeah, the only the millennials and the Gen Z know. You only live once. Hashtag FOMO. What does that mean? Fear. Fear of missing out. Hashtag I'm so stressed I can barely breathe right now. I've got good news for all y'all, okay? Freeing news. You can't do it all. And neither can I. And so life is a, a series of choices. Every yes uh, means a thousand no's. What do I mean by that? Well, let me answer that with uh, another book recommendation. It's called Essentialism by Greg McCown. It's not a Christian book, it's a, but I think it's a brilliant book. And the thesis is really this. Instead of making just like a millimeter of progress in a million different directions, what if you made a tremendous amount of momentum and growth towards truly vital things? Uh, And some of that is learning to distinguish the vital few from the trivial many. Uh, And and the hard part is learning to say no to everything except the essential. Because if you don't prioritize your life, someone will do it for you. A core truth of essentialism, and I would say, this lines up with the teachings of Jesus is that only a few things really matter more on that in a second. But my twin girls were born four months before nine 11. And uh, it was hard not to think, you know, what, what kind of world are we bringing our kids into? For those of you under 30, it's hard to overstate like how impactful nine 11 was for us, even up here in Canada. Um, one day, you know, you'll explain to your kids how crazy COVID was for, your, for our generation. But some of you may remember President Bush's speech to the nation a few weeks later. And uh, so here's what the, the leader of the free world encouraged the nation to do. This was the best way to serve the nation, get on, back on track. Anybody remember? Go shopping. Go shopping, because if, if we didn't go to the malls and buy a new pair of Nikes, somehow the, the terrorists would win or something. It's, it's how we've been told to get out of other crisis. You may have noticed, spend our way out of it. Uh, we got that message in COVID, Serb checks. You know, don't, don't just put them in the bank. You know, spend them, get the economy moving. You mean if I uh, get takeout from local restaurants, you're saying I'm kind of a hero? Then I'll do my part. <laughs> uh, and that's exactly what people did in the years and months that followed 9-11. They bought stuff. In fact, we bought so much stuff and borrowed so much money, uh, the entire financial system crashed a few years later. By the way, I'm not suggesting that you know George Bush's comment caused the the 208 financial crisis. I'm just, I just find it interesting that often our solution to crisis, to be good citizens, is to go out and spend. And it certainly isn't just our politicians we're hearing that from. We're inundated with that message, advertising. Look, we're educated, rational people. We don't think we're easily influenced, but it's also easy to forget that advertising is a, is a form of propaganda. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that is intentionally designed to lie to you, to get you to believe that if you'll only buy uh, this or that product, then you'll be happy, or at least happier. And what they have to do is somehow bend logic backwards to make us think that our wants are actually our what our needs. But interestingly, you know, as as Western wealth and technology continue to rise, uh, as the middle class begins to rise in places that, in my lifetime, were considered third world countries. Um, Many researchers are finding out that our collective happiness is not increasing. Uh, In fact, in fact, some studies indicate that as a nation's wealth goes up, its happiness goes down, or at least levels off. Something about the human psyche that quickly adapts to, uh, to the new normal. You know, things that we categorize as needs today a car, a phone, a daily multivitamin, uh, electricity, running water. You know, those didn't exist until recently. And yet, many generations were quite happy without them. And so what Comer's in his book is advocating for, what I want to grow in, what I believe is a biblical principle, is the discipline or the lifestyle or the practice of Simplicity. Simplicity. Let's define, uh, first of all, what it's not. It is not a style of architecture, Uh, a modern home, you know, with angular design and a nice black and white color palette. Uh, My favorite record producer is a guy named Rick Rubin. Yes, people have favorite record producers. (laughs) I'm not weird. You're weird for thinking I'm weird. Uh, and he is this sort of uh, L.A. pseudo-hippie Buddhist, yeah, with a really minimalist-type aesthetic, uh, not only in his his music sensibility, but in his lifestyle. That's, that's pretty cool-looking to me. Uh, this is his house. Can you tell he doesn't have kids? Uh, <laughs> my wife loves this uncluttered clarity, uh, probably because uh, I'm a, I'm a tad more on the hoarder spectrum than she is, but that's not what I'm talking about this morning, especially considering it's a multi-million dollar home in, in Malibu. I'm, I'm not talking about a vow of poverty, um, It's not about having a bare home and an empty closet and a a joyless life with with no freedom to enjoy material things. The whole goal is actually the opposite. More freedom, more joy. Uh, Simplicity isn't about living with nothing. It's, It's about wisely, contentedly living with less. Thirdly, simplicity is not about organizing your stuff. Uh, cleaning out the garage every spring, uh, buying a label maker. That's not what I'm talking about. God bless Marie Kondo. Uh, I might argue, though, if you need a Marie Kondo because you have so much stuff, um, you're not practicing simplicity. By the way, folks, this is not how I'm living yet, not by a long shot. But I think there's something worth chasing down in this idea of... Simplicity, particularly for a follower of Christ. Uh, Joshua Becker defines simplicity this way the intentional promotion of the things we value most and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. Uh, Richard Foster was was the first writer in my life to introduce me to the idea of simplicity as as a spiritual pathway a spiritual discipline. This is what he says. Simplicity is an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle of choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possessions towards what matters most. So so notice that minimalism isn't just about money and stuff. It's about how you do life, how you do Christmas. And... There is this intrinsic connection, I think, between simplicity and hurry. My desire today isn't to declutter your closet. It's to declutter our lives. God wasn't meant to kind of fit in the leftovers of your schedule. He's so much more worthy than being uh, prioritized under Things and RSPs and Black Friday sales. You might be thinking, isn't this rant just for rich people? Kinda. Poor people don't call it simple living, they just call it living, right? Poor people don't read books on minimalism, they pray for justice. But I will say, if you're here today, I say this with zero guilt. The odds are you're not technically poor. Uh, In a worldwide perspective, if you make $33,000 Canadian, uh, you're in the top 10% of the entire world's wealthiest people. If you make more than 46,000 Canadian, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. Listen to Paul's command to the rich in Ephesus, First Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that. Simplicity is actually the way to grasp the life that is truly life. Uh, I read that verse for years and thought Paul was talking about somebody else. Uh, I, I knew a few rich people. I figured this verse was about them, not me. Um, I grew up with a dad on a pastor's salary. Uh, you know, thoroughly lower middle class. We had a home. Usually Uh, what's called a parsonage, which, you know, the church owned. It was a gift uh, to have a a nice home, don't get me wrong. Our vacations were, you know, Manitoulin Island or the Pentecostal Bible camp, but it was that sort of thing. But even if I weren't rich, which it turns out I am, uh, I'm not off the hook. Jesus' teachings on money and generosity weren't often to rich people In fact, the majority of his audience were often poor. And for Jesus, simplicity was the practice that's entirely based on on his life. In, In Jesus' life and teaching, we see the very same tension that runs all the way through the library of scripture. On the one hand, the world and everything created is very good and it's meant to be enjoyed. And then on the other hand, it, it, it seems that too much wealth can be dangerous. It has the potential to, to tempt our hearts away from God. And so we see Jesus happily living in that tension, enjoying a fancy meal with friends at a home one minute, accepting the lavish worship gift from someone. And then the next minute, you know, warning what money can do to your heart to follow Jesus Especially in Canada, especially in 2022, we have to live in that same tension between enjoyment of beautiful things that God created and simplicity. And when in doubt, to err on the side of of generosity and simple living. So, how do we practically start on this road? What are some baby steps? Uh, Comer, in his book, has just a few suggestions. These are not the word of God, uh, but there's some wisdom here. And maybe it'll just sort of principles that will inspire your own creativity. For instance, number one, before you actually pull out your credit card to buy something, maybe ask yourself, uh, what is the true cost of this item? Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, let's think of a, a motorcycle, for example. What will it cost to clean and repair and maintain and store in the winter and fuel and finance? Because it's more than the sticker price. Um, What will it cost in time? Will it add value to my life? Will it help me enjoy God more? Scotty's like, yes, 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 yes. Uh, Number two, before you buy, ask yourself, um, by buying this, am I inadvertently oppressing the poor or harming the earth. It may involve a little research. Is child labor involved. One in six people in the world work in the garment industry. That's 1.5 billion people. 80% of them are female. And fewer than 2% of those, 1.5 billion people, make a living wage. Number three, never impulse buy. Isn't it amazing how when you exercise control in the moment and don't buy an item, um, how often that desire passes by the morning, you know, in the cold light of day, you're like, I don't think I really need that air fryer, you know? And of course, the larger the item, the longer you should wait. Even pray about it. (sighs) What a crazy idea. Number four, when you do buy, maybe opt to buy fewer, but... Better, longer-lasting things. When you can share, share. I know families who share tools and equipment and vehicles. Uh, number six, get in the habit of giving things away. It, you'll find it really is more blessed to give than receive. Number seven, live by a budget. Oh, let's move on for that. Number eight, learn to enjoy things without owning them. The park, the library, creation. Uh, nine, cultivate a deep sense of appreciation for just simple pleasures. A a fresh cup of coffee, home-cooked meal, a a bath, riding to uh, work on your bike, a sunrise, good conversation. Number 10, and especially this Christmas, lead a cheerful, happy revolt against the spirit of materialism. I have learned to be content in all things, Paul says. And in our context, it may not be something major like uh, prison or shipwrecks or bankruptcy or or long-term health issues. Often it's much more subtle, much more insidious. There's this great enemy of the human soul called discontentment. Uh, Ecclesiastes describes it as chasing the wind and all the hurry, all the stuff, all the distractions, all the influence, all the popularity and power are not going to scratch that itch of, of contentment for you. The, the kingdom we're called to is so countercultural than the, the life of, of the GTA. I have enough. I really do. I guess I'd like an electric bike, a Vespa, uh, uh, um, a resort vacation. I think I'm learning, though, that those things aren't really the solution to my soul itch. Uh, We saw in the drama a pretty accurate depiction of what folks are striving for and what's not satisfying them. What I really need is time to enjoy what I've already been given and to enjoy it with God. That's that's the idea of Sabbath, yeah, enjoying God. If you want to break free from the heavy yoke, a yoke of consumerism, outdoing yourself, outdoing last Christmas, feeling overwhelmed. In fact, if you want to really stick it to the man, Take a day, maybe just one day, and don't buy, don't sell, don't shop, don't surf the web. And instead, cultivate a real enjoyment of so-called you know, simple blessings. A meal with friends, uh, a walk in the forest, uh, watching the beauty and grace that is Connor McDavid on skates. Uh, above all, slow down long enough to enjoy life with Jesus who offers everything that materialism promises but can't deliver on, starting with true contentment. So what's it going to be? A life of restlessness, a hurried holidays, a Chevy Chase style National Lampoon's Christmas where more is more, uh, always comparing your life to the next person, Itching for your next purchase, your next project, or a God given contentment from living an unhurried, undistracted, unplugged kind of life. In the years to come, do you think life is going to get slower or faster? Faster, I, I imagine. More hurried, more soulless, more emptied. Are we going to? Sprinkle in a little Jesus every now and then as we speed through life. You know, come to church when we can. Know, grow, and go if it doesn't interfere with our already too busy schedule. Pray when you have time. Abide with Christ after our to do list is done. Or are we going to take another road? Uh, It's a much more narrow path will you radically alter the pace of your life to take up the yoke of Jesus? And he says, come to me, find rest for your souls. I mentioned that essentialism, the book thesis really was a statement that only a few things really matter. And in the the gospel of Luke chapter 10, Jesus is invited to Mary and Martha's house. And the Bible says that Martha was all distracted by preparations of hosting people. Meanwhile, Mary sat at Jesus' feet, listening to him, spending time with him. And Martha's understandably perturbed by this. She says, Jesus, would you mind telling my lazy sister to get off her butt? That's the Jonathan translation. And Jesus says, I imagine he says it gently, Martha, you're worried about a lot of things. But There's only one thing worth being concerned about. And Mary's discovered it, and it won't be taken from her. New Market Alliance Church, we are worried and upset about many things. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. May we find it this Christmas, and it won't be taken away from us we want to give you another gift this Sunday, just to sit and reflect after a busy week for all of us, I'm sure, just to receive this gift of sitting at the feet of Jesus this morning, not for what you can get out of it, uh, not so that you can be blessed in some way, but just for the joy and the privilege of being with Jesus, just for just for the sake of the relationship itself, the one thing that really matters.